This is Words That Move Me, the podcast where movers and shakers like you get the information and inspiration you need to navigate your creative career with clarity and confidence. I am your host, Master Mover, Dana Wilson. And if you're someone that loves to learn, laugh, and is looking to rewrite the starving artist story, then sit tight, but don't stop moving, because you're in the right place. Hello, friends. Welcome, first-timers, and welcome back to those who are coming back for more words that move me. You are walking in to episode one of a very special series. This is week one of Audition August. Four weeks of talking almost exclusively about auditioning and booking work. Whoa. I'm jazzed. (laughs) Um, I'm going to start off with a very special story, one of my favorite audition experiences. Although, don't worry, there will be plenty of time to go into my least favorite audition experiences. But first, wins. This week, my win is that I met Josh Smith. I have admired Josh's sweet, sweet moves uh, for some time now. But recently, I got to interview Josh for a special episode of the podcast in partnership with CLI. That episode will be available to you here after Audition August, so be sure to stay on the lookout for that because, holy smokes, what a great conversation, what a great human, very stoked on that episode. Um, But I'm celebrating this as a win because I'd never met Josh. And the thought of a 30-minute conversation with somebody that I've never met being live-streamed, eventually reaching hundreds of thousands of dancers and educators around the world, made me super nervous. Um, Before I went into it, though, I remembered this saying that my acting teacher, Gary Imhoff, once shared with me years and years ago. And it's very appropriate for Audition August that I be gifting you this thought now. Gary said that butterflies, or the fluttering feeling that's wrapping on your insides when you're nervous about something, those butterflies aren't nervousness at all. They aren't self-doubt. They aren't fear. The feeling of butterflies wrapping on the walls of your stomach is actually your potential knocking and asking to be let out. This thought is one of my favorite thoughts to bring with me when I head into auditions or nerve-wracking situations, Um, in my case, this interview. And let me tell you what, it went so well. Josh was so kind, so insightful, and so open. Um, I really felt myself rise to a new level of potential in my question asking, in my interviewing, and I sensed the potential of a budding new friendship. So, boom, that's my win. What's yours this week? What's going well in your world? Okay, great. Congratulations. I am so happy for you. I'm so glad that you're winning. You deserve it. Keep crushing. All right, speaking of crushing, I'm gonna start today with a story of my favorite audition experience. This is many, many years ago now, and I'll start at the very beginning, which is a very nice place to start. 
name that lyric. Anyways, I got an audition breakdown from my agent that was for a project, Rhapsody James, one of my favorite choreographers and dancers and creator types. Um, she was putting on a show called Sirens Assassins. It was actually a remounting of a work that she had already done. She had this, uh, this company, this creative project of hers called Sirens Assassins. And um, the show is more or less, and I hope I'm not doing it a disservice by giving it the, um, the super micro wrap up the cliff notes if you will but sirens assassins sirens assassins is a show about women who possess very specific gifts skills or talents that make them in some way lethal so these are not women that you want to cross in other words the show itself is very dark very sensual very mysterious very exciting it is like a film noir but a show noir. So anyways, Rhapsody is remounting The Sirens Show. Everybody knows and loves this show. Everybody knows and loves Rhapsody. In the breakdown of the audition notice, Rhapsody was calling specifically to replace a few existing roles in the show, but she also was asking for new characters. She asked to bring any ideas, bring yourself, bring yourself fully. Of course, and as always, dress body conscious, which is code for dress in clothes that reveal your body, not conceal your body. Another wardrobe note was to wear all black. Okay, so this audition notice hit me with a one-two punch. Super combination. Knockout. Number one, open call. So many people. I'm already thinking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Number two dress body conscious. As a person that was not 100% confident with my body, anxiety dials up a little bit. And number three, wear all black? Okay, how am I going to stand out? I decided in that moment that one way I could stand out would be to deliberately disobey the call to wear all black and wear all white. I imagine that as being a surefire way to stand out although possibly not in a great way. So my mind kept massaging this thought of wearing all white, and then I eventually thought to myself, what if I even painted my face white? What if I was a clown? What if, what if this call for new characters, what if that is where I stand out? Not just in what I'm wearing on my body, but what I'm doing with my mind. Oh yes, oh I like this, let's go deeper. What if I'm a, a clown? Scary clown, yeah, it's been done. Maybe that's a little bit too on the nose. What about a mime? What if my mime character, my mime assassin, had invisible objects that did real damage on the stage? What if the swing of an invisible machete sprayed blood across the back of the wall or the imaginary pulling of a ring out of a hand grenade thrown into a group of dancers that then jumped and hit the ground like could we really dial up illusion and give this mime character a really really cool and really really invisible edge i became so jazzed on this idea i kept whirling and going and going deeper and digging in at the time, also, I'd like to mention, how lucky was I to have a makeup artist 
as a roommate. How lucky was I to have Gia Harris, makeup artist extraordinaire, as a roommate. So she and I got right to work. Concept locked, loaded. Execution. Oh my gosh, give me strength. I showed up a little late to the audition. Deliberate. Wouldn't recommend it. I didn't want to get there early and be tempted to converse with my fellow dancers or with Rhapsody herself. I had committed so fully to my concept that I knew I would not speak a word from top to bottom. So I arrived late partially for dramatic effect, but also partially so that I could really, really commit and sell the silence. I entered the room with the squeak of a door and almost every step that I took also had a squeak. You could hear a pin drop, a gasp, and it took people a while to recognize who I was. Obviously, face paint. As soon as Rhapsody recognized me, she shook her head with a frown, but a sparkle in her eye that said, thank you. And also, what in the heck are you doing? Now, I knew Rhapsody relatively well, well enough to know that she favors the bold and brave ideas. Oh, that reminds me. Perfect example of one of my favorite quotes by Shirley MacLaine, who happens to also be front and center on the vision board of my life. Uh, she says, don't be afraid to go out on a limb. That's where all the fruit is. I'd like to add that it is also where the branches get thinner and susceptible to breaking. So you might fall, but alas, it is where all the fruit is. So at very least, it is worth a risk assessment. I remember dancers in front of me, beside me, behind me, in 360 degrees, absolutely killing themselves to get Rhapsody's attention. I mean, flipping, turning, jumping, in heels, and not much else for most of these ladies. And all I did was stand, pretend to lean on a fake wall or table, smoke an invisible cigarette, and when it was time to dance, I danced. I found several places in the choreography to layer my ideas about these invisible weapons. And something, whether it was visible or invisible, sealed the deal for me that day. I booked the job as a mime. Rhapsody wanted the mime. Let's have a conversation about the difference between being special and having special skills. At the bottom of a dancer or performer's resume, there's a section for special skills. And honestly, when I'm sitting on the other side of the casting table, that's where I look first. This is where you get to tell people if you know how to fence or do aerial work or operate heavy machinery like a forklift. True story. I've seen it under special skills on a resume. Can operate a forklift. I love this stuff. It's what really sets dancers aside from one another. And under my special skills, at the time I auditioned for Rhapsody, you could absolutely not find mime because it wasn't a skill that I had. It was a special idea that I had, not a special skill. Enter panic. I knew that if I wanted to portray this role and my creative vision to its fullest, I needed to back it up with actual skill, actual technique, actual mime training. So I did what I do. I hit the Google. 
and I searched for best mime teacher in Los Angeles. Kid you not, the first three results pointed me to Lauren Eric Salm and his mime theater studio. Lauren is a full-time performer, mime instructor, and movement coach. Most recently, he coached uh, Jesse Eisenberg in the role of Marcel Marceau himself for the film Resistance, which is a must-watch, by the way. Extremely beautiful and extremely relevant, even though it takes place during World War II. Lauren brought me the tools that changed my craft more than any dance training I ever received. And he and I even went on to create our own curriculum, Mime Technique for Dance, which you will be seeing a second season of very, very soon. Please stay tuned for those details. We'll talk a little bit about that in this interview. Um, But today I'm bringing you just a part of that conversation with Lauren, because believe it or not, mimes can actually talk for quite a long time. (laughs) The whole interview is available by becoming a member on my Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash WTMM podcast. I will link to that page in the show notes where I will also link to Lauren directly. One of the great things to come from this pandemic is that right now Lauren is doing all of his workshops online. He just started a level one intro workshop. It's a six class series. Unfortunately, the first workshop is already underway and sold out. But for anyone that's interested in really blowing the lid off of their training, adding a super special skill, please email Lauren so that you can get information about registration details for the next workshop. Email info at mimetheaterstudio.com. Again, that's info at mimetheaterstudio.com. Or you could call 310-494-MIME, which is super cheeky. 310-494-MIME. I really do recommend that you seek him out. He is a busy, busy guy, but if you can train directly with him, holy smokes, it is so worth it. All right, all right. That is it for me today. Enjoy the first episode of Audition August and enjoy listening to mime and movement expert Lauren Eric Salm. Oh, and trust me, by the way, the irony of having a mime on a podcast is not lost on me. All right. Enjoy. Lauren Eric Salm. I am so excited that you're here. Thank you for being on the podcast. I am jazzed about this. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm really happy you asked me to do this. I'm thrilled. Um, let's get into it. Let's get, the, let's get this train moving. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself. My name is Lauren Eric Salm. Uh, I'm an actor specializing in mime and character movement, and I also teach mime and character movement, uh, and I do that through workshops and classes, and I do in private coaching, and I also do that through movement coaching for film, television, commercials, music videos, animation, um, all kinds of on-camera applications where character movement is important. Okay, so on the teaching front, um, can you recall some of those first few sessions that we had together? I I think the thing I probably remember even more than specifically what we worked on was just 
us meeting each other and and my getting to know who Dana Wilson is because um, it was, I mean, I felt like we hit it off really well, personality-wise. You're, we're, we're both so um, enthusiastic and passionate about what we do that it was uh, excitement on top of excitement. Um, and I remember, I mean, I think I started uh, by teaching you some of the fundamental concepts that I teach everyone who is new to mine. And um, that's always my first, my first step. And then the next thing that I, I think I did with you was try to focus on how, on what you needed to do, how you needed to apply this to what you were going to do, how much of it was traditional mime, how much of it involved dance um, or something else, and how that was going to require us to, to tailor our work toward the goal of that particular role. I wasn't sure what you knew and what you didn't know and what was going to be new to you and what you were going to look at and say, oh yeah, this is something I already know how to do. So I was, I was excited about the things that were new to you. And, and I remember some of them were, it was like a revelation of, of a, an entirely new way of looking at something perhaps that you did know, but it was a whole new way of looking at it. And, and I know that that was an exciting part of those sessions that we did together was giving you a new way of looking at movement. I mean, for someone as experienced in movement as you were at already at that time, to give you a new way to look at it and a way to expand on that was exciting for me and for you. Yeah, it was like, it was like dance gets in a room with mime and dance loves mime and mime gets in a room with dance and mime is like, wait, are we the same? Are we the same thing? Is this like weird self-love that we have? Um, yeah, in, in my studies with you, I was always blown away at the overlap between mime and dance. For me, I think mime does a really, really good job at explaining possibilities of motion and explaining combinations of movement and explaining parts of the body and explaining dynamics of movement. I just, I remember hearing you say words and being like, whoa, that's what that's called or that's what you call it. And um, feeling so glad that there was in fact a name for things. And in mine, in many cases, there's a diagram for things. And um, I am a sucker for words, obviously, because here we sit uh, in my podcast, but I also love notation. I love preservation. I like to think of myself as an archivist. Um, and I think you are as well. You are you are writing a book about mime and you are one of the few um, in our time and certainly in this city that I know of that have trained with Marcel Marceau, one of the greats. So I knew that you were something special and I knew that the relationship between dance and mime was something special, something that I wanted to dig more into. Um, and you and I did eventually create a um, more or less, I guess, I'll call it a syllabus. We created a training program called Mime Technique for Dance. And we broke, we broke it down into a, a five-week class course. Um, we'll, get, we'll get to that in a second. But for those that are listening that don't know much about mime or might think, 
white face paint and white gloves when they think about mime. Um, could you tell those listeners, which no shame if that's you, uh, could you talk us through the difference or the differences between pantomime, traditional mime, and corporeal mime, which is what became such an important part of our course? Sure. Well, I think that um, a lot of people's impression of mime or knowledge of mime is limited by what they've seen. Film and TV tends to have a very narrow idea of what mime is and what it can be. A, a lot of it, if not all of it, comes from stereotypes that grew out of Marcel Marceau's work. Marceau, of course, is, he was the world's most famous mime throughout most of the 20th century. And the, the first one to be widely covered on, on film and TV. And for a very long time, for many years, um, as, as he helped repopularize the art, most people were copying what he was doing and for, for a long time. So any stereotypes that grew out of that came from his, his look, uh, his costume and makeup, his style of performance, the, the, the types of stories that he would tell in mime. And because Marceau wore white face makeup, that was probably the largest part, the largest stereotype that grew out of it. So al almost universally, when people think of mime, they think of white makeup. Um, it's kind of a long story, but yes, the white face tradition came from a character named Pierrot. Pierrot was the central character in the pantomime of 19th century France. So to give honor to that tradition, Marceau wore the white face makeup. It was never his intention that everyone wear white face when doing mime, but because people copied his style, they also copied the white face, many of them having no idea where it originally came from. Um, also, what, what people copied were the illusions that Marceau made famous, especially early on. When, when people weren't very familiar with mime, part of Marceau's performance was performing the illusions almost separately from any other context so that people could appreciate the technique and, and the art and the virtuosity of mime. And that was one of the things that stuck. He popularized things like walking against the wind and an illusion that came from a piece he had called The Cage, which involved creating the illusion of what looks like an invisible wall. Um, he also did the tug of war, um, which is pulling a rope, walking upstairs, things like this that became very common illusions um, attached to mime. But Marceau's work went far beyond that. Um, he, has, he had comic pieces, dramatic pieces, lyrical, poetic pieces, symbolic pieces. And it's a much deeper art form that goes far beyond simply creating illusions. There's, of course, acting involved. Um, when we think of pantomime and mime nowadays, the terms are largely interchangeable. You really have to go back into history, into the 19th century, and even way back to ancient Rome and look at, how, at what mime was like in different periods in time to understand the differences between those two terms. And it would take a long time to go through those. So I'll basically just leave it at, at there are historical differences between the two. Today, we don't largely differentiate between those two terms. 
When it comes to, you asking me about corporeal mime though as well, um, there is a big distinction between pantomime and corporeal mime. When, if you ask someone who knows corporeal mime what pantomime is, they will sharply distinguish it from what they do. Um, corporeal mime is, is a technique that was developed in the early 20th century by Etienne de Creux, who, like Marceau, was also from France. In fact, he was Marceau's teacher. Um, around the late 1920s and early 30s, de Creux decided to recreate mime from scratch. And in studying the body, what you can do with the body, how the movement of the body works, and how you can use it expressively in, in acting, he created this technique he called dramatic corporeal mime. That's the full name of corporeal mime. Um, and it's based on a very structured technique, breaking down the body into individual parts and studying how to move those parts individually, isolated from the other parts and in groups of parts. So a lot of it is getting to know how your body moves very, very well, very technically, and, and expanding, creating a movement vocabulary. I mean, it, it, corporeal mime offers a movement vocabulary, and it expands the performer's movement vocabulary, whether they didn't have one to begin with, or whether they have one that perhaps comes from a different um, approach to movement, like dance or acrobatics or, or, or acting. Um, it, it offers a, an expanded way of understanding how you can move the body and how you can use it expressively. Beautiful. Put a stamp on that and ship it. <laughs> um, as you were talking about corporeal mind being a very technical, um, or let me, let me say this, corporeal mind has a very technical way of breaking down the body into parts and then groups of parts. Um, and there are names for all of these parts and groups of parts, and there are ways that they can move together or isolated from each other. And I remember that as I was learning this skill set from you, or as I was learning this technique from you, I remember being in a bathroom at SNL Studios, practicing how to isolate my head from my neck. Looking at like looking at myself in a mirror in a suit and tie. We were we we're uh, going to be performing suit and tie with Justin Timberlake in like an hour and a half. And I was standing in the mirror looking at myself, trying to hold my shoulders still and tilt my ear closer to my clavicle without moving my neck. <laughs> and it's that degree of detail that corporeal mime really focuses on. And I had no clue how little control I had over my, over my body. I really fancied myself a person that, you know, knew what I was doing all the time with my body. And I really had to try hard to accomplish these seemingly very simple tasks. So I had, you know, from that point on, I was smitten with it and I really committed <laughs> to achieving an awareness of my body and this kind of 
I guess it's more than awareness. It's an awareness and a control and an ability to describe what I was doing that corporeal mime gave me. And I think those are the key points that we tried to bring forward with our workshop, Mime Technique for Dance. It really was geared towards achieving this awareness and control and way to describe what we're doing with our bodies. And um, it was so much fun for me. Creating that syllabus with you was such a ball. It was challenging, but it was so much fun. So our first class was isolation, which I, I, how would you explain isolation to a person that's not a dancer or a mime? Um, well, it's um, a little like what I mentioned before. It's learning, it's, it's first knowing the parts of the body that you're working with. Uh, in, in life, when we move one part of the body, we tend to move more than one part of the body without meaning to or even being conscious that we're doing so. You move your head and your neck almost always moves with it. Sometimes you move your head by moving your neck. But even when you, when you think you're just moving your head, you don't realize how much your neck is moving as well. Or your hips, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, yes, you, you go to move your chest or your waist, and, and your, hips are, your hips naturally get pulled along the way. Um, it, it's not natural for us to isolate one part of the body from the other. There usually isn't reason to do so, so we're not aware of how to do it. Um, but when you're using your body expressively and movement is everything, you want to be able to move the parts you want to move and not move the parts you don't want to move. So that um, because there there's a difference, one one thing, one movement says one thing and another movement says something else. So part of the work is understanding very carefully where one part ends and the other begins, and working on different ways of holding some parts still while moving other parts. It's always a balance of tension and relaxation, of movement and resistance. There's a lot going on and it takes a while to learn how to do it. I like to think of isolation as being how you direct the audience's eye. Um, and I think of movement in terms of volume and I would want to make very, very quiet a part of my body that I don't want the audience to be looking at. And then I turn up the volume on the part of the body that I do want the attention to go to, whether it's my leg or my hip or my shoulder, um, everything else gets quiet, almost muted. And then I dial up that, that part that I want to highlight or spotlight and, um, it's a very important thing for a performer to know how to do, be, be they dancer, actor, mime, you name it. Um, that type of directing the eye. Oh, or magician for that matter. Yes, yes, for, for magicians, I, I've taught magicians before. And of course, directing the audience's eye and their focus is, is extremely important. Um, and movement can attract the eye. So if you want to, for instance, if you want to get them to look at one thing and not another, um, being able to hold one part still or minimize the movement of that part while moving some other part can be useful in getting the audience to look where you want them to look. <laughs> um, and then week two, we dug into character. And this, I think, oh, it's hard to pick a favorite, but character might be my favorite part. In our character workshop, we talk about a movement center which I would explain to 
a dancer as being the part of the body that tells the audience the most about the character um, with while saying the least. So I don't have to do a full dance to explain. I could just stand there. And by highlighting or spotlighting this one part of the body, the movement center, the audience would know who this character is and what's important to them. Oh, I think we also um, covered the commedia in that class. Did we do that? Did we talk about Capitano and um, Colombina and Arlecchino? Who, who am I missing? Pantaloni. Can you talk about those those four characters real quick? Sure. Um, the Commedia dell'arte uh, was the Italian comedy of the the Renaissance era, and from that um, tradition comes a whole set of characters that are very broadly defined, not only by their personalities but by their physicality. Uh, the, studying the Commedia characters is, is a great introduction to understanding how clearly different one character can be from another by connecting the physicality to the personality you're trying to express. Well said, well said. Um, let's see, moving right along, week three, we covered dynamo rhythms. Um, how would you explain dynamo rhythms? And oh my gosh, it would be a good test if I can remember the, the 10. Uh, well, the, the name dynamo rhythm, it's a combination of the dynamics and the rhythm of a movement and of movements as they relate to each other. And as they relate to time, like how they move quick or slow or a combination of quick and slow. Yeah, yes, exa exactly. So, so the, the, dynamic, the dynamic part is things like uh, tension and relaxation um, and, and an accent, I guess you could say. And the rhythm part is what you were saying, the relationship to time, the tempo, the speed, and the, what ends up being a rhythmic relationship between each movement and the movements before and after it. Incredible. And we're just halfway through our course. <laughs> I want to go through and explain what those 10 different dynamic rhythms are. Otherwise, we might be giving away our course. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. You don't get that for free. Come on now. Come on now. <laughs> um, okay. In the next week, we covered imagination. I suppose we dug a little bit more into illusions that week. Oh, segue in uh, the difference between subjective and objective mime. Could you talk about that a little bit? I remember my mind being blown in our first couple lessons. You helped me understand how I use my imagination to see an apple hanging from a tree, but how I use my body to show the audience how far away that tree is and what my emotional relationship to that tree and that apple are. Um, so, so using objective mind, to explain the object and using subjective mime to, to explain things that do not have physical form. Yes. Yeah, so, so when you're, for instance, creating the illusion of picking an apple off a tree, you're ob using objective mime to show the tree, to show the apple, and you're using subjective mime to show your thought process, what you're thinking about when you're dealing with these objects. Why? What was the thought behind wanting to, to take an apple? How do you feel about it? How does it taste? Um, I mean, what's your reaction to tasting the apple? 
I'd like to think every performance involves subjective mime, if not objective mime. Whether you're, you're dancing or acting or, or doing mime or, or anything really, it's, if we can't see some kind of expression of your interior state of being, what the quality of your thoughts, um, the, what kind of emotions you're expressing, it can be a very dry expression of technique, or maybe not dry. The technique can be impressive or entertaining, but it can also, we can also feel like we're missing a, a connection to it um, if we don't get something from inside you. And that's uh, the emotion or the thought behind the movement. Um, adds so much more to it, and that helps you connect to your audience. So that's where subjective mime comes in. There's there's definitely something different when we can see that there's a thought process there, and that the movement is the result of a character that's thinking and feeling something, and not just executing movement, no matter how well they they do that movement. That actually reminds me of an incredible quote that I have. Um, from my acting teacher, Gary Imhoff, who says, I believe these are his words. They, they could be somebody else's words that came through his mouth. Um, but Gary always said, and I will never forget, stage presence is simply the amount of interest you have in what you are doing. And being engaged in some sort of imaginary thing is being interested in something and being interested in something is attractive. And so, you know, you will see, or, or you might say that somebody with stage presence, you might not be able to put your finger on exactly what it is that they're doing, but I can tell you it's that they're interested in something. They are thinking of something other than simply executing five, six, seven, eight. Yes. Yes. Cool. So, um, come take our class. <laughs> I'm not even, we're not even done. That's just, okay. So that's number four. Um, and then our fifth week. Okay. This one might actually be my favorite on the subject of being interested and being interesting and being expressive. Um, week five is all about emotion. Uh, can you explain some mime attitudes for us? What, what is an attitude in mime? Um, this is something that is very much from Marcel Marceau's approach to mime. Mar Marceau, when he, when he was asked to define mime or, or to describe mime, he would always say it's, it's an art of movement and attitude. Attitude is part of subjective mime, really. It's expressing your internal state of being. So, there's there's an external the external attitude is the the position the body is in whatever whatever position the body is in whatever posture whatever your arms and legs are doing what your head is doing that's the the external attitude of the body the internal attitude is the psychological and emotional state that you're in which of course we can't see so it has to be in order for us to to know what it is, it has to be expressed with the body somehow. Um, so the attitudes are a series of, of movement studies where we look at, at different emotions and how those emotions express themselves, themselves in the body. 
and being able to do that involves exploring that emotion and finding finding what is what I like to say is is essential about it, finding the qualities that are essential to that emotion. Um, and then once we know once we can put it into a single statue, then we can start to to move it around and know know what elements of that statue to carry into the movement. I love that explanation. And I think you just revealed one of the other reasons, as if I needed any more reasons, that I love mime. And that's that it is very deliberate, very specific. Um, the, all of the fat has been stripped away. You have what you called essential qualities. And to me, essential qualities become universal qualities. I grew up in the suburbs of Aurora, Colorado. So let's say somebody grew up in the jungles of the Amazon rainforest. They might see the mime attitude for fear and understand that that character is afraid. These are like universally spoken and universally heard, but without words. It's so poetic. It's so beautiful. And I, I'm geeking out right now just thinking about how beautiful that is. So when you're not learning and you're not teaching, you're actively working, whether it's with an animator or um, as a movement coach. Actually, one of the things I'm very, very excited to talk about is your latest project as a movement coach and choreographer um, on the film Resistance, starring Jesse Eisenberg. And I'm thrilled to see it. It was just released Movie releases right now are, are not what they usually are. Yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Um, but still, it's, it's been a special release, and Jesse's talked a lot about the process of preparing for this role, and he talks a lot about you, and I'm, I'm so glad that he does. I'm always fascinated um, in hearing about how actors prepare physically for roles that are very physically demanding. Um, in this film, Jesse is portraying Marcel Marceau, and whoa, what a daunting task. Um, I'm so glad they found you. Could you tell us a little bit about how they found you? Sure. Well, uh, I've, been, I've been doing movement coaching for film and TV for, I think, about 18 years. So my name is out there as a, as a movement coach for this sort of thing, but when it came to finding a coach or not only a coach to teach someone mime, but to teach someone how to play Marcel Marceau, the, who's widely considered the greatest mime performer of our time, that was something more specific. And um, I actually heard about the film early on after the first press release was put out that the film was in development and that Jesse had been cast to play Marceau as soon as I heard that, I immediately started trying to do everything I could to contact the producers to tell them I'm the guy. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the movement coach that you need for this project. Um, and and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't find them. I tried every bit of um, contact information I could find for them and for their company, and I absolutely could not get through to them. I was as frustrated as I was about not being able to, to get through and talk to them. I finally had to give up because I didn't know what else to do. 
months went by, actually I, I, about a year went by, uh, and I figured that ship had sailed. They were making, the, the film was made, they found someone else, and I lost my chance to work on it. And then one of my students said to me that they had just seen a press release about the film, uh, that they were still casting some other actors. And when I realized that they were still casting and hadn't shot the film yet, I thought, wow, maybe there's still time to get in on this. But I still didn't know what else to do. Uh, I, I asked someone who I knew in, in the industry, um, someone who, who is a, a manager th that who didn't represent me, but who I thought might have connections that could get to the producers in some way that I wasn't able to. So I, I asked them for, for help with this and, and, and they said they would, um, even though it seemed like kind of a long shot at this point since the film was already so far in, but they said they, they would give it a shot. Literally two days after I asked them for help, I get a call from the director and he asks to meet with me. So I meet with, with him and the producer over lunch. And somewhere in the conversation, I casually ask him how he heard about me. And he, and he says, I, I found you on the internet. See, I'm telling you, Google you. <laughs> but, but I said, I said so you, 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 just did, uh, you just did a search on the internet and that's how you found me? And he said, yeah. And I didn't want to be specific, but I said, just to clarify, I said, did someone tell you about me before you looked me up? And he said, no, he just on his own did the search and found me. And somehow his finding me had nothing to do with this person who just two days earlier, I had asked to try and get to the director. It was just some cosmic coincidence that when I took this one last shot at trying to get on this film, the film found me. It was destined. <laughs> and I'm so glad that it happened. And I'm glad that you were found because it seems like, well, it sounds like I haven't seen it yet, but it sounds like from everything I've read that you did an incredible job. And I'm not shocked by that. Um, it sounds like Jesse took really well to the training. Um, and in all of the interviews that I've read, uh, Jesse talks about working with you as being kind of a two-pronged approach, this academic side where you taught him a lot of history and gave a lot of insight into who Marcel, you know, the person that is him. Um, but then of course there's the physical side, um, the learning of the techniques, the rehearsing, the learning, the choreography. I'm wondering if when you do this type of work, if that's always your approach, do you always take an academic and a physical approach to teaching this type of work? It depends who I'm teaching for what purpose and in what context. When I teach my own classes and workshops, I, I do mix the history in with my teaching because I think it's important for students not only to learn the technique and learn, and learn how to use it, but mine is, it's different than if you go to take an acting class or if I, if I might say I, a dance class, um, 
it it would be unusual in in either of those for the teacher to feel the need to give you the the history of theater or the history of dance for you to be able to understand what you're doing partly because more of those things are are commonly known whereas mime most people know don't even know the history of mime back to the beginning of the 20th century much less all the way back to ancient Greece. And not that they have to, but um, I, I like people to know something about the art and where the techniques come from that I'm teaching them and what the difference is between one kind of mime and another kind of mime. Um, and so I naturally mix that in. Also because I'm very interested in it, so I think I naturally introduce that as part of my um, teaching it to other people. But if I, if I was coaching someone, um, you know, sometimes if I coach for film or television, I have very little time to work with an actor. I may have a few sessions with someone. I may have one session with someone. I might even be brought directly onto the set and coach someone right before they're going to shoot a scene, which is certainly not ideal, but sometimes that's all I get. So I don't have time to to add this surrounding material, I have to get directly to this is what you're gonna do and this is how to do it. Um, with Jesse though, not only did I have a lot of time to work with him, we, we worked repeatedly over a span of several months um, and we had hours at a time to work together, um, sometimes consecutive days at a time to work together. Um, but for him, it was also, he not only had to do a scene or two where he performed mine, he had to play the character. He had to play Marceau and understand the character and why, where Marceau learned mine and um, how it figured into his life and him as a person. And um, so I, aside from my natural tendency to introduce history into the lessons and, and be very academic about it, it was also part of helping him understand Marceau and where Marceau fits into mime. I mean, who this guy was and why he became the most famous mime in the world, even though Jesse didn't really have to worry so much about that in the story, because almost the entire film takes place before Marceau began his career as a mime performer. A lot of people ask me the difference between movement coaching and being a choreographer. I like to think of movement coaching as everything that doesn't involve a count. <laughs> All movement that is not count specific. Once you give a one, two, three, or a five, six, seven, eight, that becomes choreography. But everything else from the way a character sits, stands, walks, you know, all, all other movement elements of a character would fall under the scope of work of a movement coach. And I love doing that type of work. And I love the way that my mime training has supported me to do that type of work. Um, it's, oh, it's delicious. It's so much fun. So on the subject of choreography, though, because you also did choreograph the mime in the scenes of this film, um, how did you reference Marcel's more familiar works and his style without actually ripping off or like in the dance world, we would call it biting. <laughs> how, how did you show that this is Marcel Marceau without ripping off his moves and his phrases? 
Well, that was a careful line to walk. We, the director and I agreed that we didn't want to use Marceau's choreography directly. We didn't want to have Jesse perform an actual mind piece that Marceau had created um, for, for a number of reasons, but one of which, again, is that this whole film takes place before Marceau started his mime career and began creating the work that he's known for. But it was important that, particularly for people who know Marceau's work, that they could see in this younger character the, the person who was going to become that famous mime that everyone knows. So we wanted to include, in, in my choreography, I wanted to include things that alluded to Marceau's work, things that were recognizable that someone might have seen in one of Marceau's pieces that, that he choreographed. But it was also important to capture Marceau's style in my own choreography. Um, so I, I guess I, I sort of chore tried to choreograph the pieces as if Marceau was choreographing them. It, it's a combination of his technique, which, which he really didn't have much of at the time the movie takes place. Because like I said, he hadn't studied mine. He hadn't studied with Decru yet, so he didn't really have a technique. What he had was his innate talent for movement and his, his talent for imitation. Um, imitating the silent film stars that were his influences, like Charlie Chaplin, Harold Lloyd, Buster Keaton, um, and, and just imitating people. Um, but I, I put some of that technique on top of that, even though he wouldn't really have had it yet, so that his movement would somewhat resemble the movement that we know when we think of Marceau. So I had to bring his style into it, and at the same time, avoid my style. Because although I use his technique, I use it in my own way. And, and here I, I had to be very careful that I was teaching Jesse to use Marceau's style and not my style. So that was a part of the work. The other thing was mime is not just movement, it's drama. So there's, Marceau has his own dramatic approach to telling a story, to expressing a thought. And that's something that I know very well from having studied with him. So I put, I tried to put Marceau's way of approaching drama into, and when I say drama, I mean comedy and drama. I mean, I mean that's a lot of it right there. There, there are other aspects of it, like the way that it was written. When, when Jonathan Yakubovich, who, who wrote and directed the film, when he wrote the mind scenes for the film, he had specific well, sometimes specific, sometimes general ideas of what was going to happen in the mind scene. And, and that was what I had to choreograph. So um, I also was, um, I wasn't just creating standalone mind pieces for their own sake. The, the mind pieces that were in the film were related to the plot. They had to further the plot in each scene. So that was a consideration I had to take. And of course, each scene could only be so long. So I had to work within the confines of how long the piece could be. I sometimes had to have certain parts of a piece move faster or slower 
based on the scene or how they were going to shoot it. I couldn't just choreograph these as if they were mind pieces that I was going to perform on stage any way I wanted to. They had to, it was done for a film and that, that was, something, was something different. Not to mention the fact that they were going to be performed on camera, not on a stage. And that also necessitated choosing movements and qualities of movements differently than I would if they were going to be performed on a stage. For sure, a whole different batch of considerations. Okay, here's what I wanna finish with. I could not forgive myself if I did an entire episode and not talk about the one mime technique that changed my life and dancing the most. Um, when I say life, I mean truly like the way I physically show up uh, for myself in the world every day. And that is suspension. So when I put um, a pin in breath earlier on in the conversation, this is what I'm talking about. Um, suspension probably... Uh, suspension was probably one of the first things that you taught me. So I am wondering, Lauren Eric Salm, if you could talk us through a quick um, explanation of what is suspension and maybe if we're all in a, a safe place, i.e. not driving, um, if we could join in on this uh, physically as you talk us through it. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, maybe the Cliff's Notes version? Okay. Suspension is, is very much a Marceau approach to mime. It, it, it's the, the foundation of Marcel Marceau's technique, but not all mimes use suspension. Uh, some of them arrive at suspension through another approach to their movement. They, they arrive at something equivalent to or similar to suspension without necessarily using Marceau's technique. Uh, there, was, there are Plenty of mimes, though, who don't have suspension at all. Um, it's not something every mime performer knows about. So I should say that. Um, but knowing that it, it's the perhaps the most important thing in Marceau's whole technique, and knowing that Marceau was Marceau, it certainly makes you uh, hopefully interested in knowing what suspension is and learning how to use it. Um, suspension is. Let's see, I'm trying to think of how to put this. I always have the benefit of being able to use my body to explain suspension while I'm doing it. Right, podcast is such an unnatural place for a mime to live. <laughs> Actually it is. Um, suspension is a way of giving life to the body, visual life to the body. Making you, um, making you interesting to look at. And, and I don't mean in a stylistic way. I mean making people want to watch what you're doing. It's, a way, it's, a, it's another way of giving, you talked about stage presence earlier. It's a way of holding and moving your body in a way that, that adds something to it that we don't see in everyday life. That makes it, I always like to say, if you want to see everyday life, you can just walk outside and look around and you'll see people walking around as they do in life. That's everyday life. When you see someone on stage or in a performance on, on camera or on a stage, we 
expect to see something more than that. And, and, and a, a theatrical performance, it seems like it's missing something if, it's, if we just move the way we do in everyday life. We have to add something more to it and make it more interesting. Suspension is a technique for doing that, and it's rooted in the breath. I guess uh, you asked me to give you something you could try. Try breathing in slowly. Uh, and as you breathe in, imagine that you can actually see the breath entering the body and follow it not only down into your lungs, but imagine it could go up into your head and fill your head. Imagine it could go out through your shoulders, down your arms, through your hands, all the way to the tips of your fingers. Imagine that it passes your lungs and goes down through your abdomen, through your pelvis, your legs, all the way to the tips of your toes. So by the time you're done taking in that breath, it's, the air is filling the entire inside of your body. And not just invisibly, but let it change the body as the air enters a part of the body, something that, that is visible. And then when you then breathe out slowly, and as the air leaves each part of the body, let that change go away until you're back to where you were when you started. Then try repeatedly to repeat that process, slowly and then more quickly, and then just with a single breath. You breathe in, create that image of the air going everywhere in the body all at once, in, in, in the, the second it takes you to take in a breath, and filling the body and supporting it holding it there. So your body is not just there, uh, uh, loose as Mr. Marceau would say, but that you're, you're holding it up. Not, not necessarily physically up. It can be in the same position you were in, but it's not just hanging there. You're holding it there. And using that image of breath inside the body to hold your body. And then, of course, we translate that into movement. We're using the breath to support each movement. Marceau would compare that to, to music, the way that music sustains a note. A, when, when you play a note on a wind instrument, the note only exists as long as the breath supports it. Or when you sing a note vocally, as the moment the breath is gone, the note dies. Movement can be very much the same way when it's supported by suspension, by the, the, the image that there's breath inside the body throughout the movement, it gives visual life to that movement in a way that makes that, takes it to a, a new place. Thank you. <laughs> that is exquisite. That was a perfect rundown without saying too much. One of my favorite things to do was to suspend with different qualities of breath, or in other words, the visual quality that I give to the breath that's entering my body, depending on the character that I'm portraying, might be um, a pale blue, kind of like the sky type of breath, or it might be molten hot magma, <laughs> or it might be like the galaxy, dark, dark blacks and bright bright whites and stars and swirls and colors and stuff. So, so the visual qualities that I give the breath that I take in also changes the way I'm held instead of hanging. I love that differentiation. Um, so there's a, a lot of different ways that I've used suspension 
not only in performance itself, but in the way that I train people to become aware of their breath and train people to become aware of the quality of the carriage of their body. It's a very fun thing to imagine and a super fun thing to practice. And I love practicing it. I love, uh, I, I love being able to practice this at all times. You really truly can practice it driving. I just didn't want you to hear about it for the first time while you're driving because it does take some focus. But I remember learning uh, suspension for the very first time and practicing it while I was in the car being at stoplights. And I would look to see if the person next to me was noticing me. And if they weren't, I would suspend and just count the seconds before they looked. It, it is in re relationship, in relationship to stage presence, it is an incredible way to get people to look at you by being interested in your own breath, how, you know, it, it makes you an attractive being to be inspired, I guess. Um, maybe we could close out with just a couple words on, on inspiration. Um, what inspires you? What gives you breath? Wow. Um... I've always been inspired by movement. I'm not sure I can even tell you why. It's something that just feels right. I, I think always wanting to be an actor and having this feeling for movement, when I found mime and, and could combine the two, I guess that's when I realized that was my thing. That is a beautiful answer. And I'm so glad that you love movement because I guess because of that, here we are, a mime and a dancer, <laughs> having a conversation, <laughs> talking uh, for hours. I cannot thank you enough for sharing, Lauren, your, your, your insights and the wealth of information that you hold are truly priceless. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, well, you're very welcome. And thank you for inviting me on the podcast. I'm glad to be a part of it. And of course, I always love having a conversation with you. My pleasure. My pleasure. And likewise. Okay, everybody, um, we're going we're gonna to sign off and see you all later. Lauren, thanks again. Thank you, Dana. Bye. Bye. I'm waving like nobody can see that. <laughs> <laughs> Thought you were done? No. Now I'm here to remind you that all of the important people, places, and things mentioned in this episode can be found on my website, thedanawilson.com slash podcast. Finally, and most importantly, now you have a way to become a Words That Move Me member. So kickball changeover to patreon.com slash WTMM podcast to learn more and join. All right, everybody. Now I'm really done. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you soon.